This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So uh, every year I give you a litany of uh, drugs that we are uh, uh, involved in clinical trials. So I thought this year I would take a different approach and discuss uh, what the unmet needs are in transplantation and in which areas uh, we are getting involved in. And the background picture is that of a uh, vineyard and uh, on a hill. And this, the unmet need here is to produce great wine. You know, the grapes have to struggle on a, on a hill to produce that wonderful wine that uh, we can get in the Napa Valley. So what are some of the therapeutic unmet needs in transplantation? Uh, one is therapy for delayed graft function. Um, this has been the great graveyard of drugs. A lot of drugs have been tested and have failed. Number two is preserving renal function. Because if renal function is preserved over the long term, then graft survival will increase, of course. And number three, an area which we're still struggling with, the area of antibodies, by meaning desensitization of highly sensitized patients and the effective treatment of antibody-mediated rejection. Now, in previous years, I've discussed the drugs for delayed graft function, uh, which uh, uh, we were involved with. There are three important drugs that are currently in clinical trials. We've had... uh, uh, clinical trials that you see in the three of them. The first one is uh, a, a antisense from Quark, which uh, basically uh, box, uh, blocks the gene expression of P53, a gene which is important in the post-ischemic apoptosis of cells. A phase two trial uh, that was completed a couple of years ago uh, suggested it was effective in some patients. A study in native kidney, AKI, has been positive, and Sandy Fang was involved in this study. Uh, the phase three was completed, and you know, hopefully within a year we'll get the results of uh, this therapy. The second one is a study that Chris Fries was involved with at UCSF, and uh, this is the infusion of pegylated carboxyhemoglobin, uh, which uh, uh, provides carbon monoxide uh, in at levels that are uh, safe. And carbon monoxide has uh, several properties. It does have very potent anti-apoptosis effects and also has anti-inflammatory effects. In experimental animals, carbon monoxide is extremely effective in both cold and warm ischemia models. And so, again, this study has been completed, so we're waiting for results. Uh, The third one, BB3, uh, or hepatic growth factor, this is somewhat of a different study. This is an ongoing study that we're performing at UCSF. This is the only drug that's given post-ischemia and to basically uh, increase and hasten hasten the uh, healing of, uh, of ischemia reperfusion injury. And so uh, this is unique because here you don't have to predict to the patient pre-transplant the risk of DGF. Here you only recruit patients or you treat patients who in fact develop uh, delayed function. 
The problem with these uh, therapies that they really have to complete with a therapy that has zero cost. And this is a beautiful, and I think it's becoming a classic article by our group, uh, uh, Dr. Neiman, Rio Hiroshi, and John Roberts, published New England Journal, where they did a randomized study of uh, deceased donors, where they reduced the temperature of the donors by two degrees centigrade only. And what they found that they could decrease significantly the, the incidence of delayed graft function. This effect was more pronounced and more significant in kidneys from ECD donors uh, than, than uh, standard criteria donors. But, it, you know, as you can see, that there was a trend uh, even in standard criteria donors, but, of course, more uh, significant in extended criteria donor kidneys. And I think there are many studies that suggest that older kidneys, extended criteria kidneys, high KDPI kidneys are more susceptible uh, to uh, ischemia reperfusion injury. And so uh, the, these molecules will have to uh, perform much better because obviously they're going to cost more than zero. So uh, the, the other important approach uh, and met need is how to preserve renal function for the long term. And currently we have uh, basically two CNI-free regimens. The first one is the Belatacep-based regimens. And I think uh, when you hear later on uh, June Shoji and Mine Sarwal, they will be discussing our uh, precision medicine approach to Belatacep. Belatacep can be very effective long term. In the short term, there is a higher risk of rejection that sometimes can be pretty severe. So we're trying to circumvent that by selecting patients who are not resistant to this therapy. The second approach, of course, is to use the mTOR inhibitors. The first one was serolimus and now everolimus. And these, of course, are non-CNI. They are not nephrotoxic. They don't produce vasoconstriction. Unfortunately, by themselves with MMF, without CNI, they're not as effective. Of course, they're ideal because of their anti-proliferative uh, properties uh, for patients who have history of skin cancer, who develop squamous cell CA, or patients who post-transplant have malignancies. And so conversion from a CNI to an mTOR inhibitor uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, however, for efficacy for de novo therapy, uh, it's been found that the mTOR do best when they are uh, coupled with uh, tacrolimus, but in very low doses. So there is a study that just been published in uh, JSON. It's called the TRANSFORM trial. This is the largest trial of its kind in transplantation, 2,000 patients, where patients uh, could be treated with mTOR inhibitors, everolimus, and tacrolimus, but the target levels of tacrolimus are very low, 1.5 to 3 nanogram per ml. And so there was a slight uh, improvement in GFR. It wasn't significant. Uh, the study, <coughs> uh, the published study is one year, so it may take longer to see differences. But I think amazingly, because the mTOR pathway is so important for DNA-based viruses, there was a significant reduction in CMV and there was reduction in BK infection. So the, as we know, and this is, uh, you know, that can take a whole hour to discuss the, the, the potential benefit of mTOR inhibitors. There are many collateral benefits of mTOR, although 
they can be occasionally more problematic uh, to be used in transplantation. Uh, so how do we preserve renal function? So avoiding nephrotoxicity, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is to avoid or eliminate CNI. Unfortunately, if you take a patient with triple therapy and you withdraw uh, the calcineurin inhibitors, the rejection rates are very high. Many patients develop DSA. This has been done. It's, it's settled. So basically, uh, this approach requires novel therapies, and we'll come to that in a second. The second thing uh, that's important to preserve renal function is to prevent the formation of donor-specific antibody, which is associated with rejection. Controlling inflammation and fibrosis, especially controlling inflammation in fibrosis. And uh, uh, at UCSF, we're doing studies with infusion of TREG to control inflammation. And there are many other potentially pharmacologic ways of controlling inflammation. But in protocol biopsies, about 10 to 15% of patients will have inflammation. And uh, both in our studies, Mayo Clinic have shown that those patients that have subclinical inflammation long-term have a decrease in renal function. And then there is a question of the glomerulonephritis. Glomerulonephritis can occur uh, both de novo and recurrent. And I'll show you a study which shows that this is not a tiny problem. So in terms of uh, the role of antibody-mediated rejection in transplantation, I think for a long time it was accepted that most kidneys failed because of chronic nephrotoxicities from CNI. This is one of the first studies that's questioned that, and this is called the DECAF studies. Uh, this group of investigators did a wonderful study. They took patients who up to 2005 were doing well. When the creatinine went up, they were biopsied. But their biopsy, instead of just relying on the local read, they were sent centrally. And so they were stained for C4D, which is a marker of complement activation by antibody. They got DSA uh, antibodies in circulation. And what they found that the majority of patients actually had evidence of activation of the humoral component of the autoimmune response. So either they had DSA or they had C4D deposition or they had both. And as you can see, the more activation of the, of the antibody, meaning they're binding to the kidney or they're in, both in circulation and binding to the kidney, the worse outcome. The people who did the best were those who did not have DSA and had no C4D. In fact, many of these patients were read by their local pathologists as having CNI nephrotoxicity. And as you can see, they have uh, excellent outcome. This is another study from the group... Uh, of uh, Dr. Halloran in Canada, where they had 350 patients that they followed for many years, and then 50 of those patients had graft failure. And then when the graft failed, they did both histologic and molecular studies of those kidneys. And what you can see here, that almost 64% had evidence of antibody-mediated rejection. What's interesting also is that half of the patients had clear-cut evidence of non-adherence. And this we see pretty commonly after transplantation that patients who become non-adherent will develop chronic antibody-mediated rejection. This, again, strengthened the hypothesis by the DECAF study that long-term, most people lose their kidney because of antibody-mediated rejection. Now, uh, the evidence from st several studies shows the importance of uh, these antibodies. So in this study, those patients who had pre-transplant DSA had post-transplant outcome much worse than those patients who did not have DSA. 
One of the reasons why we don't desensitize patients at UCSF, because it's really hard to get rid of pre-transplant DSA. And if these patients post-transplant continue to have DSA, their outcome is poor. And this is just to show you that if a patient has an, an episode of antibody-mediated rejection, their outcome is much worse than those patients who do not have AMR. And what's interesting is that patients who develop de novo DSA after transplant have poorer outcome uh, in the middle figure than those patients who do not who have DSA. So DSA is an important marker of antibody uh, rejection. It's associated with poorer outcome. So basically, it's important to avoid them at the beginning, not transplant these patients who have DSA. And number two, making sure that you are immunosuppressing them adequately so that don't develop DSA. So just recently, an interesting article uh, came out from the group at Mayo. So in Mayo, they, uh, they take patients who tend to be very adherent. Uh, the majority are living donor transplant. And they biopsy them every year for 10 years. And what they showed that in over 10 years, oh, I don't know why, that the majority of these patients had either, I don't know why this is not showing, had either mesangial uh, proliferation, focal sclerosis, uh, hyalinosis, and only 12% of patients had finding consistent with, let's say, previous antibody-mediated rejection, interstitial fibrosis, and transplant glomerulopathy. So, you know, what this tells me is that the causes of late graft failure depend on the patient population. If you have immunologic high-risk, non-adherent, you're going to have a lot of chronic antibody-mediated rejection. On the other hand, if you have living donors, low immunologic risk, adherent patients, then the, uh, the halinosis, the vascular lesion, the glomerular lesions, and uh, tend to be most important. So the strategies to improve long-term outcome cannot be with one model. Uh, so it has to be tailored to the type of patient that one uh, deals with. And so um, to improve long-term outcome, the therapy needs to target the specific patient population. And, and so we continue to need novel regimen that can spare the kidney from these chronic changes in the, ah, I don't know what's happening here. Uh, my slides have this white line all of a sudden, and I don't know why. Okay. Um, so, uh, two drugs that we are interested in in preserving your function. One is uh, uh, an anti-CD28 antibody, and the other one is uh, a novel anti-CD40. So the, uh, as you well know about uh, Belatasib, that it binds to the CD8086 uh, ligands and prevents them from interacting with CD28. And so the CD28 receptor, which is very important to activate the effector cell, is blocked. Unfortunately, when you're blocking the ligands, you block them from also interacting with the, uh, with the receptors that uh, transmit negative signals, so suppress the immune reaction, and that's CTL4 and PD, PD1, PDL1. Uh, and so basically, you do get inhibition of the activation pathway, but you also do not get activation of the inhibitory pathway. The Tregs, uh, CD28 and CTL4, are very important uh, uh, 
receptors for their activation, their fitness. And so one of the issues with belatalsib is that it blocks, of course, effector cells, but it also blocks regulatory cells. And maybe one of the reasons why we see this severe rejection with Bella is because we are undermining the regulatory cells. And so uh, one, one of the potential advances is to use an antibody to CD28 so that we're blocking CD28, but we're allowing the ligand CD8086 to interact freely with all the inhibitory pathways and at the same time uh, maintain uh, the fitness of regulatory cells. And so this is a uh, domain antibody that has been used in primates that uh, seem to be better than belatasep. And so we want to do a study with this antibody, and we're planning to do one with uh, a grant from the NIH. But because, again, we're still not sure whether the Tregs are, uh, are going to survive as well, uh, we did a study using a uh, uh, tocilizumab. Tocilizumab is an anti-L6 receptor antibody uh, that we've used in patients with inflammation. And one thing that we found that it does increase Tregs by 150%. And so in this study that we plan to, um, to start in the next uh, a few months, uh, what we're going to use, we're going to use this anti-CD28 antibody with tocilizumab in a CNI-free regimen for three months, and then see what effect it has on Tregs and on the kidney. And then after three months, stop the anti-CD28 and use belatacep uh, with tocilizumab, and then again see what difference is there uh, with the, uh, on Tregs. So we hope these novel therapies will uh, take us a step further than what we have been able to do with belatacep, and it's possible that we may need additional therapies like tocilizumab to counter any of the negative effect of uh, inhibition of CD28 by uh, increasing the effectiveness or the numbers of Trx. So one more uh, novel antibody, and that's the CD4, uh, the antibody to CD40. So you know, before Belatacep uh, started clinical investigation, the first antibody we performed actually uh, with Dr. Alan, with Alan Kirk at Duke presently was an antibody that blocked the CD40, CD40 ligand pathway, an anti-CD40 ligand antibody. And so this was supposed to be a very potent costimulatory inhibitor. Also, it inhibits uh, the B cells from being activated and producing antibody. Unfortunately, the first study was complicated by thromboembolic complications because CD40 ligand was also present and upregulated on platelets. So for a long time, there was lack of interest in this pathway. So now uh, uh, people have come back to see whether this pathway can be safely inhibited by targeting the receptor CD40. And this is a drug called uh, CFZ533. This is a drug from Novartis. It's in a monoclonal antibody that binds and does not activate uh, the CD40 receptor. Uh, and does not deplete B cells. It just blocks the receptor. And at least in the first study, uh, comparing a uh, CFZ to tacrolimus, so is, uh, the anti-CD40 antibody in a CNI-free regimen with tacrolimus, 
The composite endpoint of rejection, graft loss, and death was comparable between the two groups. And because the CFC group did not have tacrolimus, they had better GFR and, as you can see, a lower incidence of uh, new onset diabetes. And so uh, hopefully we're going to participate in the next phase of this uh, study uh, and see whether, in fact, it can uh, be an important, another important blocker of course, stimulation. So the one area that has really been disappointing has been the area of desensitization and AMR. Uh, we understand the current therapies are not very effective. Several novel agents have proved disappointing. There was a lot of hope that the proteasome inhibitors like bortezomib and carfilzomib that are used in, uh, for multiple myeloma uh, could actually uh, be very effective in inducing apoptosis in the plasma cells. But in fact, uh, they have not been that uh, effective and I think um, most transplant centers do not use them. Eculizumab, which is an antibodies to C5, uh, was a no-brainer that if you have an antibody-mediated rejection and you have complement activation, that if you block complement, you block the injury. But clinical trials now, several ones, have failed to show efficacy. I think not, not, not because we're not blocking complement uh, uh, cascade and injury, I think, first of all, antibodies can injure the endothelium in a complement-independent manner. But number two, I don't think the selection, selection of patients has been appropriate. And I think these drugs, frankly, do best when you are more selective in the, in the group of patients. You have to truly show that there is complement activation and complement deposition. Another antibody that is currently in, uh, in trial, Alison Weber is the PI at our center, is a C1 esterase inhibitor. And so we'll see whether that will have better efficacy. Again, unfortunately, their um, eligibility criteria are a tiny bit wide, all patients who have AMR, basically. Obituzumab is a drug that we have used and failed to show a decrease in HLA antibody in highly sensitized patients. This is a, a much more powerful rituximab. It produces greater apoptosis of B cells, in, including in the, in the lymph node, which rituxim doesn't do very well, but it was not very effective. And so uh, it, uh, it's not going to be developed. The other uh, new drug is called IDIS. And what is IDIS? This is a paper published in New England Journal. This is an enzyme uh, which is um, uh, uh, which is selected from uh, strep, and this enzyme has the capacity of cleaving the immunoglobulin at the hinge region, and so that all of a sudden you don't have immunoglobulin. So if you have a positive cross match and you add this uh, enzyme, your cross match turns negative, and therefore you can treat the patient, and the patient will for about two weeks, not have any more active antibodies, and you can transplant the patient. Unfortunately, two weeks later, these antibodies come back, and then when they come back, they can be very active. I've called this the honeymoon drug, uh, because it's like two people who are mismatched. They go to a honeymoon, they have a great time, but then they, at the end of the honeymoon, they wake up and they realize they're mismatched. So what happens here at two weeks, that 10 of the 24 patients had AMR, and there was one graft loss, 
the GFR at one to six months in this article was 56, but look at the standard deviation, 13. So uh, this is a good plan A, but there is no plan B. And I think until we have plan B, uh, uh, I would be careful about this drug. So the, the final promise is one of antibodies called anti-CD38. These are antibodies directed to plasma cells. So a lot of our antibodies in the past have targeted B cells. But we know plasma cells produce antibodies. We're always hoping that if you kill the B cells or you block them, they don't then, uh, then you block the next generation of plasma cells. These uh, antibodies are being developed for multiple myeloma. So we have a grant into Sanofi to use isatuximab for patients who are highly sensitized uh, to decrease their HLA antibodies. And I think these uh, need to be tested to see whether, in fact, uh, they can induce apoptosis of short-term and long-term lived plasma cells, and that we can indeed lower the HLA antibody in some of the super highly sensitized patients so that we can transplant them. I'm going to read the last bullet of this uh, conclusion that clinical trial with new agent transplantation face many challenges, but a more hopeful pip pipeline is in the works, and we have to be a tiny bit more selective in in how we conduct clinical trials. The days when you have a clinical trial, when you enroll anybody and everybody, it's gone. You really have to be selective. You may have to apply precision medicine. You're going to hear this later on from uh, many Sarwal. So finally, um, uh, we're trying to develop at UCSF a clinic for novel agents for native kidney glomerular diseases. And now that we have a good pipeline of these drugs, uh, we want to start these studies. In the past, we have done that. And since any group will see some of these diseases quite rarely, we want to have a clinic that will have a certain enough patients so that we can attract the best drug and use them and, of course, collaborate with the, with the manufacturer of the drug. So this is a, a drug that Pfizer is starting a clinical trials. Uh, this is a trial that uh, targets a what's so-called the roundabout guidance receptor, ROBO2. So the ROBO2 is a receptor on the basal aspect of the podocyte, and when it, and it, it activates nephrine. However, when it's ligand, which is called slit, binds to it, it actually neutralizes nephrine, and therefore it undermines the effect of nephrine on the actin cytoskeleton, and, they, and then podocyte get effaced. So uh, this study is going to start in the next few months for people with native kidney disease. We're going to send you letters to see if you have patients that fit the criteria that have not responded, let's say, to steroids or, uh, or CNI, and we can enroll them in the study. A few years ago, we did a study with a drug called frezolizumab, which is anti-TGF beta. And some of you sent us patients. So we had one patient of Mary B uh, that up to this day, uh, after taking the drug, had had complete remission. And so, unfortunately, the majority of patients did not respond, and Sanofi stopped uh, development of the drug. And this is another study for IgA nephropathy now, and this is a, called, a drug called Retrofin. And this is uh, the drug itself, uh, the generic is called Sparsentan. And this is a combination, a dual blocker of angiotensin 2 receptor and endothelin 1 receptor. 
And so, uh, at least in some studies, it's shown to be very effective in reducing proteinuria. So we'll, when, when we get total final approval by the our IRB, we'll be sending you letters. If you have patients with either FSGS and IgA nephropathy and you'd like to, to refer them, we'll be happy to put them in the clinical trials. And uh, again, we'll send you our contact information. And with this, I'll, I'll stop at this point and see if you have any questions. Thank you for your attention. So, excuse me? Uh, well, uh, we're using the same protocol for, a the question is about new protocol for ABO. So many of our, our, our ABO uh, incompatible patients now prefer to go through the NKR match. And one of the reasons that is this way they avoid the more intense immunosuppression that re required uh, to transplant them successfully against an ABO incompatibility. So now there is a, a different route, and you know, frankly, if uh, if I was uh, if I had the choice between uh, getting an ABO incompatible kidney, going through plasmapheresis, lowering the titers of the isoagglutinin, or b having a good match through the NKR, uh, I would do that. I would go with the with the NKR. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.